Welcome to CAA Live, the Council of American Ambassadors Foreign Affairs Podcast. My name is Keisha King, and I'm the Council's Communications Manager. This episode features a presentation and Q&A session with Ambassador Frank Wisner at the Council's Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference on November 7, 2018. The session was moderated by CAA President Ambassador Timothy Chorba. Enjoy! So good morning. Uh, Ambassador Hughes is uh, delayed en route, so I'll, I'll do the open, uh, as they say in uh, theater. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a very strong program today, and we're delighted all of you could, uh, could join us. I'm going to segue uh, directly into the introduction for Ambassador uh, Frank Wisner. Uh, he will present, as he so graciously does each year, a uh, tour d'horizon of, uh, of uh, events that are taking place around the world, areas of concern to the United States. This is one of the genuine pleasures and benefits of being president of this organization, is that I have the opportunity to periodically introduce uh, distinguished Ambassador Frank Wisner. Ambassador Wisner is a Princeton graduate, and we have, I'll give a shout out to Caitlin Quinn. Is anyone else here a Princeton graduate, or just besides Ambassador Wisner and Caitlin Quinn? Caitlin was one of our Annenberg Fellows uh, some years back. Uh, Ambassador uh, Wisner sequentially was ambassador to Zambia, Egypt, the Philippines, and India. He was also the successful negotiator for the United States in the resolution of Kosovo. He has served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and as Undersecretary of State for International Security Affairs. And today he provides his firm's clients with strategic global advice concerning business, politics, and international law. Lest that uh, description uh, lead one to comfortably characterize him as a card-carrying coastal elitist. Uh, not so fast. A wary New York Times reporter a few years ago described him as a barrel-chested and martini-drinking individual <laughs> who, had, who had, at least temporarily at that time, forsworn cigars for which he was so well known. Uh, I can tell you he's a formid formidable uh, pheasant, grouse, and duck hunter. While Nick Burns described him as a supreme American diplomat, Ed DeGerian said, the title of ambassador does not suffi suffice for him. We need to call him Pasha. <laughs> Leslie Gelb, uh, in a New York Times piece, said that a Zambian, and this is a quote, a Zambian minister, and, and of course Ambassador Wisner was ambassador to Zambia, a Zambian minister once told me, it was always easier to agree with Ambassador Wisner than to let the meeting go on for four days. <laughs> He's persistent. So with that, lest I be accused of letting my introduction go on for four days. Let me turn the microphone over to our most distinguished guest. Thank you. Welcome, Frank. Tim, it goes without saying, I'm 
enormously flattered by your introduction, <clears throat> particularly as we've been colleagues in the past um, in the same law firm, Squire Patton Boggs, and um, have been friends now for a number of years. And you again do me the honor of allowing me to return to the podium that I stand at today. Um, so thank you very much. I won't <coughs> correct your flattering introduction, except to say I don't think I've ever touched a martini. <laughs> if I did, I didn't like it very much. It's fake but news from the New York fake, Times. Fake news from the New York Times. And yes, I do regret having abandoned cigars. That was a number of years ago. But I'm very glad to be here with all of you today and to see a number of old friends. If I tried to identify each one of you who I've known over the years, I would certainly miss someone, so forgive me for not doing that. I'm also uh, owe you a bit of an apology, as I imagine if you're like me, you stayed up quite late last night to watch the returns from our most recent election, and um, <clears throat> I retired fairly late, um, but as I understand the results this morning, there's still a few uh, seats to be decided, and so we don't know the full outcome. But if we turned on our morning television, we certainly would, our ears would have been filled with thousands of comments coming in every direction. So I won't trouble you with my own except to make a couple of rather general points. Um, it is, I think we could all agree, wherever you sit in the American political perspective on the American political horizon, uh, it, you can claim a victory. The president did this morning in his tweet, um, and I'm certain that uh, Nancy Pelosi's Democrats are cheering the outcome in the House. Uh, the president has every reason to do be pleased because the Senate is now even in firmer hands, able to provide him for a very strong defense um, in any assault that might occur on his presidency and indeed from uh, Mueller's investigation. The House is now in Democratic hands, um, and that will present for the president a serious challenge in domestic affairs and in foreign affairs. Um, I can see ahead, and I'm sure all of you would agree with me, battles over Russia. Um, it will be much harder with a Democratic majority to sort out Russia policy, if you will, and reset our relations with the Russians, something I believe is important as a matter of strategy. Um, Saudi Arabia is going to be very much in the frying pan, whether it's the war in Yemen, our arms sales to Saudi Arabia, or the provision of nuclear technology, all of these will be debated in the House, which will have considerable, a considerable hole on the outcome. And then, of course, there's trade, uh, the president's instrument in trying to correct what he's declared unfair agreements. I would part company with him in that, but nonetheless, he's had a pretty easy run. Now he will have a more complex one. And it's important that that be the case for trade is truly a shared matter between our legislature and the president um, and has been for years and the Congress has been notably mute as we've approached NAFTA, <clears throat> as we've approached China, as we've approached the Europeans, 
and now threaten to approach the WTO. I think the Congress will also take issue with some of the threats of treaty withdrawal, be it INF in Europe or treaty withdrawal uh, from other international undertakings, the WTO being a very good example. And I suspect there will be a good debate in the Hill over climate for the first time since this administration took place. The Democrats will try to score climate points. And they will have in the House considerable weapons in their pockets. The power of subpoena will be a telling and important power. Oversight hearings can be hugely disruptive and cause political controversy. And then there's the budget process itself, where funds are allocated under our budget, starts, of course, in the House. So the Democrats have some very powerful tools when they take over the House at the same time. And on the other hand, if they press those, use those tools too freely, they'll find themselves caught in the dilemma of looking like they're opposing with no particularly thoughtful agenda. For all of us who care deeply about this nation's international posture, our foreign affairs, our national defense, we have to worry. For the next two years is going to be a time of politics and posture. Politics and posture, not policy. That we will face and continue to face a deficit in strategy as we continue to carry out our domestic debate, our royal polity on our foreign policy stage. Uh, as we look at ourselves from the outside, it'll be a bit of a mixed message, this election. From abroad, the president has, will have definitely proved, and I think the morning's messages from around the world, he's shown that he has real staying power. He wasn't simply going to be checked in one election. But his authority has been uh, called into question, and nations will adjust themselves accordingly. I would suspect that ambassadors from the Gulf, for example, will be making their way to the House leadership to see if they could write some of the balance in the approach that Saudis and the Emiratis have found themselves in in recent years. But to all of us, we have to recognize that we are a divided America, divided at a time when we face considerable challenges abroad. 2018 uh, is a time of challenge. All of us would agree we face rising uh, competition from Russia and from China, uh, a weakened alliance system with our European friends in considerable disorder over Brexit divisions between Northern Europe and Southern Europe, Italy uh, in particular, uh, the divide between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, uh, <clears throat> the Orbans, the Kuczynskis, and the uh, Czechs on one side, and then we face, and the uh, Western side, Angela Merkel and Macron. Uh, we also are watching the play out of Mrs. Merkel's future. She's been absolutely key, the steadying hand in the European system, and now she's announced that she'll step down as party chairman and in a very shrewd manner 
has launched a debate over her successor, probably in so doing outmaneuvering her principal rival. Uh, <clears throat> but we're seeing the end of her days and that will have a consequence. We will face as well a fraught situation in the Middle East. I will return to that in a moment. The nuclear issue with Korea has not been resolved and that remains a long-term task of trying to construct a strategy that will gradually bring down the nuclear fact in North Korea and bring up a degree of security for the peninsula over the long run. And then, of course, we will face climate change in face of the devastating news from the UN's body of experts we need all to be worried about the impact of climate change on this society and the world at large. So we're going to be dealing in the next several years with an awesome array of issues requiring statecraft of the highest order, strategy, and an ability to set priorities, an ability to assemble appropriate resources to the objectives that we as a nation set for ourselves, and then to pursue policies that are based on the national interest and not on the transient politics of the moment. This is going to be, I am certain each one of you agree with me, a very, very tough undertaking. Now, I could pick any one of these topics and hold you and uh, probably bore you for a very considerable period of time. Others, many of these issues will be treated in the time ahead. Uh, you will be hearing from Winston Lord, for example, at lunch on the subject I believe is the most important single foreign policy issue the United States faces, and that's the question of China and how do we manage the rise of Chinese power without losing our way in a feckless competition, uh, but at the same time balancing China's uh, issues with us with an appropriate level of response. And Winston, I'm sure, will dwell on those subjects with you. Um, anyone who wants to ask my opinion on the subject, you're welcome to do so. I have very strong feelings. But I thought I would take the balance of the time that I have with you and then take questions uh, and talk a bit about the Middle East because I continue to believe the region is of vital importance to us and that it's change, what is going on in that region is of significance and will affect overall global interest and the global standing of the United States in the years ahead. And so it's worth keeping an eye on what is happening there. 2018, 2019, if you will, are going to prove to be a time, I believe, where we will be able to draw a line and say something actually happened, changed. I'm going a bit out on the end of a limb on this, but I feel confident enough to share a conclusion with you, and that is within the region itself, within the Middle East, a, we are observing a cresting of the wave of religious fundamentalism. A cresting of the wave, not the end of the threat, but a cresting of the wave. In fact, broadly in Arab opinion, in particular throughout the region, there is a disenchantment with the religious message that has 
built slowly over the past years and then came strongly to light in the war on, what became for us a war on terror and became the Arab Spring's aftermath, the threat of the Muslim brothers and their ilk to the fundamental stability of countries around the region. We're seeing a cresting of that wave. We're also seeing a gradual return of stability in the region. Uh, governments in Egypt, return of stability as the government extends its control over Syria. Iraq is finding at least a weak balance internally. Um, you're beginning to see uh, the North Africans are reasonably calm. There are, of course, major outliers in this story. Uh, there are incidents of terror throughout the region. They're going to continue. There are going to be threats to American forces in the region. And there are going to be issues like Yemen and Libya that remain fundamentally to be resolved. Uh, that said, I will argue two things. Number one, that the wave of fundamentalism is crested. The, in, the intellectual baggage of the region has moved on and <clears throat> stability is more the order of the day than it has been in any time in the past. But I want to pause and underscore a point that's very vital. Stability by itself does not guarantee long-term security in the region. And so it has been for now nearly 100 years. The Arab order has always been defined by a fundamental contradiction. On the one hand, the quest for stability and institutions, and the <clears throat> other hand, a desire for openness and change. Stability and change have never settled down politically in the Arab world. They aren't today settled. There are no enduring institutions, and that means that what appears to be stable today will inevitably be unstable tomorrow. A fundamental fact of Arab politics and the Arab order, and I will return to this when I talk to you for a moment about Saudi Arabia and the impulses behind the regime there in dealing with <coughs> Jamal Khashoggi and this recent ghastly event. So we're looking at a major transformation in the region internally and externally. While the Middle East throughout all of our lifetimes was a area that American influence rated as number one, that's no longer the case. We share, we share a place in the region along with major external powers, with Russia, with Iran, with Turkey, with China beginning to make its appearance on the regional scene, and of course, internal parties, uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. But balancing the external actors has never been a greater challenge than it is today. So internally, things are changing. Externally, we have to cope with a new balance of power. And that calls for American strategy, strategy of the highest order, a chance for us to reconsider our options, decide where we want to be. There will be less emphasis on the war on terror, which is good in the way that it will free resources 
to carry out a national defense strategy change and focus more on Russia and China. It will <clears throat> also mean that the United States will be able to use its own petroleum reserves as a factor in international policy which has not existed in the past. But the great sadness of the Arab region is the Arabs are no longer the dominant players in their own region, in their own houses, outsiders are the players. And what matters, therefore, is what Russia thinks, what Iran thinks, what Turkey thinks, when you try to sort out the future of Syria, Iraq, even Egypt, Saudi Arabia. And as we move into those uh, areas of policy, we also have to keep our eye on the challenge of Iran. I don't think uh, <clears throat> I will surprise you or any one of you if I tell you that I was deeply, deeply disappointed by the President's decision to withdraw the United States from the JCPOA, from the nuclear agreement that was negotiated by his predecessor. I was even more disappointed by the decision to reimpose sanctions and the actions taken on Monday, <clears throat> announced by the Secretaries of State and Treasury to impose a full set of sanctions on Iran, returning to the status quo ante um, is to me a major foreign policy mistake. And we did it in absolute violation of our own word in, to an international agreement that we had helped, uh, helped architect, helped design, helped enforce, and helped build an international system to ensure that Iran, in the short and medium term, wouldn't even have the opportunity to develop a nuclear weapon. And we did it in the face of absolute conviction, unquestioned in this country and abroad, that Iran had been in full compliance with its obligations under the JCPOA. And we did it in the face of the fact that our unilateral withdrawal from an issue as important as the JCPOA has to send some sort of signal to Pyongyang and the North Koreans, what kind of deal in the long run do you make with the United States if we can cast aside our obligations in another part of the world? I'm not for a second going to argue with any of you that Iran isn't a very difficult, very, very difficult nation to deal with and poses fundamental problems for the United States. Its nuclear capabilities that it could return to uh, is a serious issue. Its missile development, while it has a context and logic within the region, is also an issue for us. And Iran's role in the region and its domestic policies have all been matters of concern. Iran, as it moves to deal with issues of national security, can be thug-like in dealing with its enemies abroad, as was the case virtually last weekend in Denmark in an attempt to deal with dissident elements of Arab origin inside of Iran in, in Denmark itself. Um, but is Iran the greatest sponsor of terror in the world? That boggles the mind. Uh, I don't see the reach of Iranian terror beyond one critically important point. And then you have to decide what terror means. And that's the issue of Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a threat to Israel. But it is a threat to Israel 
from the Iranian perspective as a decision to try to balance or deter Israel plus an um, act of Shiite solidarity. But beyond that, do we see Iranian terror globally? I have found myself at loss to support the consistent contentions of the administration that we are facing a global threat that calls into question fundamental United States interests. So we are now arguing a number of cases, some of which I find uh, very difficult to track as well. We argue that what we are doing by reimposing sanctions is in the long-term interests of the Iranian people. Uh, that's a contention that is open to debate. But one thing I am absolutely certain of is a statement made recently in the Financial Times by a, an Iranian liberal who said, rather sadly, every time the society begins to open up, the United States comes along and steps on us. Our decision to take on the regime in this way is empowering the radical conservatives in the Iranian system. This is all good news for the IRGC. And in fact, if I wanted to argue, if we were successful in weakening the domestic order in Iran through our use of sanctions, the successor regime in Iran would not be Iranian de Democrats, but the likes of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, the principalists, and the conservative side of the house. It is only natural in a nation under siege that it rallies around its points of security. So I find ourselves in a very complex problem. We've laid down a fundamental challenge. We've opened up a new level of confrontation. And the confrontation is dangerous. It's dangerous because we have soldiers in northeastern Syria, in Iraq. We have forces deployed in the Gulf, all of whom are in harm's way. And it is quite easy to imagine where miscalculation could lead to confrontation, and confrontation that could not be managed easily in light of the fact we have no, absolutely no, lines of communications today to Tehran, not through secret channels, not through back channels. We broke those all in an effort to tell the Iranians that we wouldn't do business with this regime. I find that difficult as a matter of policy and frightening when I look back at the incident that took place in the Gulf when our Navy vessels, Navy, naval vessel was picked off by a Iranian naval contingent and John Kerry who did have communications with the Iranians was able with Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran to talk the matter down, get the sailors released without going to war over the subject. Today, that fire break doesn't exist. It's very serious and one that I hope the administration, once it gets past sending its opening signals, will calm down, look at, and figure out how once again we can deal with the problem. I predict, and I feel pretty safe about it, that this confrontation with Iran is going to last for some time. We aren't going to cry uncle and the Iranians aren't either. In fact, to, quite to the contrary, they're doubling down on their internal security, their economics. 
uh, to be able to resist this latest assault on Iran. They've gone through several in the past, and they feel reasonably comfortable. Whether their hopes are optimistic or not, I leave for history to tell us. But what I do know is they have substantial experience in dealing with the onset of sanctions. They did so during the period of the Iran-Iraq war, and they did so in the run-up to the JCPOA in the time of the Obama administration. So they're tough, they're smart, they're experienced, they're wily, and this time we are going into a sanctions regime without the full-hearted support of our European allies, the Russians and the Chinese, which means we're taking on this battle alone, and that is not a prescription for success. But it'll last for a while. We're out on the end of a limb, I don't see us walking back, and as a result, I think we're going to see great stress in this relationship and danger. Um, danger that will be destabilizing for the region because we will not have the power of maneuver with Iran that I would have wished would have been the case had the JCPOA played out and become more of a political instrument and less of a nuclear one. So we're faced with what we have. At some point, at some point, we and Iran will find a political solution to those subjects that divide us. At some point. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know the terms under which it will occur. But it is inconceivable to me that we plan to face history in perpetual enmity. And so at some point, we will. And if you want to put your mind to the task of how to go about it, one way you could keep in the back of your mind that appeals to me is the experience that we had when we said no nukes to Iran. In 2003, we let the Europeans trace out the outlines of the agreement that we eventually used to mobilize a global effort to come up with the JCPOA. Is it possible that the Europeans, if they could get their act together, which is a great if, could play some running create some running room to deal with a follow-on agreement to the JCPOA, to deal with control of missiles, their payloads and their, uh, the, the length of their ability to fire, and third, to deal with the issues in which we in Iran and the Europeans have legitimate differences of view over Syria, over Iraq, over Yemen. Uh, all In all of these areas, you cannot get peace in the Middle East without an Iranian component. And if we can't find it, maybe we can let some friends of ours begin to explore the grounds for moving ahead. Well, dealing with foes is a tough job, and it is a tough job in any administration. And in the case of Iran, I think we've made it more difficult. But dealing with friends is also complicated, as the recent events in Saudi Arabia have shown us. Friends are friends, but their makeup, their, uh, their cultures, their political perspectives, their national interests differ from our own. And so how we manage friendships is almost as tough a job as how you go about managing the differences you have with your enemies. In the Saudi case, we've had a terrible event the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi is uh, 
absolutely ghastly. There's no way to describe it. Uh, it's worse, as Talleyrand said, uh, because it's just a darn blunder. They could not conceivably have thought that they were doing anything that made any sense when they decided to send Saudi operatives to Turkey, virtually enemy territory, and then carry out this event on Turkish territory in the light of Turkish intelligence systems, which tracked virtually everything that went on. I mean, how stupid <laughs> and how ghastly and how truly ghastly the whole event has been. But before we find ourselves frozen in the headlights of the horror of this event, I think it's worth stepping back and, remem and remembering there's a lot more at stake. And we are going to have to approach this issue with some degree of poise, of judgment, and of, of care. As dreadful as it is, our political position in the region rests heavily on our relationship with Saudi Arabia. We cannot solely survive in the Middle East with one ally, Israel. And the strongest pillar we have outside of Israel is, of course, Saudi Arabia. We can't confront Iran without Saudi Arabia. We can't assemble an Arab side without Saudi Arabia. And we can't begin to use our influence creatively with Russia, Iran, and China in the region without a Saudi component to it. So not only the source of hydrocarbons for the international system, Saudi Arabia is a power factor that we have to take into account. And it's even more important today in light of the fact that there are no major, that the Arab world itself is so broken um, and so divided and so unresolved in its perennial dilemma, its quest for stability and its quest for openness and the chaos that that breeds with it. I am, don't see any change, nor do I see an end to disruptions on the Arab horizon, but we need allies to be able to deal with it. So what do we do? We've also got to remember that what's at stake inside Saudi Arabia is important. 2030, the plan to reform Saudi Arabia was the Saudi response to the Arab Spring. Today, because of this event, uh, 2030 has fewer foreign sponsors. 2030 has been undermined as a matter of image inside the kingdom. The king himself, the aged king himself, is now having to go consult the tribes and rebuild some strength behind his national power and behind his son, who he's determined to have succeed him. MBS is going to be the next king of Saudi Arabia unless some act of God interferes with it. But to see the progressive moves of Saudi Arabia to open its economy, to open its society, to control its religious excesses, to give women a decent place in Saudi life, all of this is now much more complicated. And it will require, and one of the great ironies of the Arab world, progress and reform is always accompanied by repression. No regime feels strong enough to change itself 
without controlling in the very toughest manner its domestic critics and even doing that preemptively. So we have to understand what has happened here with Jamal Khashoggi has a place in the Saudi rulership's mind. A man who had deep ties to the Muslim brothers, a man who was threatening to start another political party, um, was a threat. Now how they dealt with it is ridiculous and tragic, but why it happened we need to bear in mind because that leads us to how we deal with it. And I thought that Jim Baker wrote a very wise piece of advice uh, about 10 days ago when he said that um, you need to go at questions like this with unrelenting determination and do it principally privately to be very clear with the Saudi rulership that we cannot abide by actions of this nature. But privately, do not try to hector them publicly or the result will be you're sending the signal you wish the downfall of the regime, which will cause them to react exactly in the way you don't want them to react, privately. To insist, second, on dealing with Yemen and Qatar. Yemen, thank heavens, I'm pleased to note in the last several days, General Mattis, Pompeo have called specifically on the Saudis to get off a dime, to put their shoulders behind getting a negotiation between the Houthi rebels and the, <clears throat> and the uh, Saudi and UAE-backed uh, government, uh, government's government. Uh, very important that we get Yemen off the front pages, the tragedy there, the starvation and suffering of the Yemeni people dealt with. And Qatar is an insane quarrel. For any American national interest, we need a strong base in Qatar. We need Qatar's involvement in controlling fundamentalism, and we can't have Qatar at odds with Saudi Arabia and the majority of the Arab coalition. So it is also a good time for us to think about where we want this game to end. Um, while Jim Baker didn't make the point, I will, and that is our interests as Americans lie in seeing a normalization of ties across the Gulf, a balancing of Saudi Arabia and its allies and Iran, not a confrontation. Now, throughout history, the two sides have lived uneasily. That uneasiness is now a matter of great danger. And we, it's in our interest to see a de-escalation. So we have tools to use, not just political suasion, not just private pressure. We have huge things the Saudis need. They need our blessing to make the economic plan work. They need our consent for weapons to be sold to Saudi Arabia. They need our willingness to help them develop their nuclear system. At all these points, there is serious American leverage. But American leverage alone is never enough. You need your allies, and that means we need to have a common front with European friends pursuing similar objectives and <clears throat> friends inside the Arab world quietly telling the Saudis, time for a change, time for a new look at the region. So lots for the United States to do, many challenges. 
ahead on the global scene, many in the Middle East, much for you to think about. And if what I've said sparks a question or two, I'd be happy to answer. All right, we'll, we'll start with <laughs> Ambassador Cliff Sobel, who was ambassador to both uh, Brazil and the Netherlands. Thank you. I think uh, it was worthwhile for us to be here, um, and it wasn't so early uh, to listen to you this morning. I think you did a great summary of uh, um, so many points of interest, uh, even though we may not agree with you on everything you've said, you definitely have a um, a great point of view on it. I think I know your answer of where you're going to go with China, but I think we'd all like to hear it, especially after what you said about the Iranian sanctions, but we don't need to go back to that point. But before you talk about China, maybe just give your perspective on keeping troops in Afghanistan. Uh, sorry, keeping in troops, Afghanistan, leaving our troops. forces in Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. Well, um, it, no, none of us ought to sit around comfortably and forget Afghanistan. 18 years, and we still have a substantial American military commitment despite the pledge of two presidents to bring it to an end. Um, and yet, like Uncle Remus's tar baby, we seem stuck there. Um, that's not an acceptable position for the United States. It is inconceivable to me that 18 years from now, if we were all still gathering here, that we'd be looking at this thing again. So how is it going to end? It isn't going to end with a military victory. Uh, we, uh, our allies, the government in Kabul, and those who support it, including the Iranians, are not going to crush the Taliban. You can't do it because they have very deep roots in the country, and they can't do it because you can't control all the borders, notably that with Pakistan, and even the PACs can't control that border if they were minded and they're not always minded to do so. So it must have a political end to it. I welcome, therefore, once again the signal that the administration would back the government in Kabul and begin to reopen an exploration of a political settlement with the nomination of Zal Khalilzad to uh, lead the effort. Um, at some point, the, a negotiation is going to work. But I am also convinced that it is not and cannot work unless it is a closely coordinated affair involving the United States, Pakistan, the Russians, the Chinese and the Iranians. In other words, if the outside doesn't crowd Afghanistan and make it clear to the internal players that time is right for a settlement, I don't see how there will be enough pressure on the parties to compromise. And what I find missing in American diplomacy today is that sense of surrounding the problem with political pressure. I welcome the political initiative, but it needs to be reinforced. Second, I'm not going to argue we ought to pull our troops out, uh, but we are facing a huge problem, and that is the military capability of the Kabul regime based on its own internal political weakness. 
and keeping the other factions in the country, the Pakhtun and the, uh, the northern, the old members of the Northern Alliance in line is a constant political task, a balancing task. It preoccupied uh, literally two previous administrations and it's wearing down this administration. But we have to continue to try to maintain a coherent Kabul side of the equation as we pursue political negotiations. Third, uh, a degree of military pressure is also important. If the, if the Taliban reaches the conclusion that we're out of there with our financial and uh, military support, they themselves uh, will come to conclusions that they don't have to reach a settlement, and there's no way we can force them to do so. But it has to be clear that the outcome is going to be one that is going to permit the various Afghan sides to uh, find some level of, of compromise, whether it's territorial with huge dispensations, allowing the Taliban to control regions of the country politically, economically, or some other form of power sharing at the center. I'm at ill place to tell you what the right question would be and I won't try to guess it. What I know is it has to be political, and that's where the uh, American people need to understand and insist with their administration. This is not a war to be won by soldiers. Um, somewhere after a reasonable time, I've always felt that this is not America's primary national interest, and there is a moment after a good try at achieving a political settlement, that there are other ways to contain the Taliban than having to do it ourselves as part of the front line. We have the example in the back of our minds and must. There was a time in history when Kabul, under Taliban rule, was balanced by Uzbeks and Tajiks and a northern alliance involving Iran, India, and Russia. That option remains open. Where Iran is enmeshed in civil war for a long time, but it's a civil war that makes certain our fundamental interests are not, don't leak out of the Iranian situation. I'm not prepared to go there quite yet. I'd like to see the present task become very political, more allied before falling back to a failed, of sort of a, a worst case outcome. Uh, China, that's, that I really would be wise to leave to Winston, and uh, but I'll do it with a simple word. And that is, um, I admit to being part of those who believed at the outset normalization with China would create a new world for the United States and it would even uh, lead to fundamental changes in the political and economic structures of China and China's outlook. And I now recognize, I hope most Americans do, that it doesn't quite work that way there. You have to have not your only your own dreams, you have to recognize that other people have their point of view, and that the Chinese have very definite national outlooks 
of asserting their presence in the world in line with the fact that they're becoming a truly great power again, economically, but in much more than that. And they're going to insist on sharing space with the United States. We cannot afford to allow them to do that by walking on our toes. And where they deny American companies or force American companies to share <clears throat> technology, this must be opposed with every measure possible. But to take China on in a broad trade war with ill-defined objectives, I have trouble understanding. I have tried time and again to identify with the administration spokesman of it, what is it that we want as a economic and trade relationship with China? And I am faced with the fact that I believe there is serious divided counsel on our own side, and therefore working towards an outcome with China has become much more difficult. So deciding who we are and where we want to go is the precondition of a sensible policy of getting through this trade crisis that we're facing at the moment. Thank you very much. That was Ambassador Frank Wisner at the Council of American Ambassadors' Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to CAA Live on iTunes or Google Play and leave us a review. Tweet us your thoughts on this week's episode and tag us at AMER Ambassadors with the hashtag CAA Live.